I'm walking in a forest with bushcraft instructor and wildlife tracker Lucio Hagen, heading towards her forest camp. En route, though, I get a lesson about... Oh, there's a poo. Poo. Lucy asked me to kneel down and smell it. What do you smell? It's some... like a... mushroom. Hmm. So it's in the middle of the track. Which is Pine Martin classic? Well, no, a lot of animals will do it in the middle of the track if they're um, displaying territory. So foxes will classically do this a lot so that the smell is carried across the trail. Um, Pine Martins will do it too. And then some animals, you know, they'll just get caught out. They'll just be moving from place to place like we all do, (laughs) you know, and they need to go to the toilet. So what I'm really learning about is tracking, a lot of which is actually about poo. What it looks like, what it smells like, and what it contains. Like ten minutes ago I was on the motorway, five minutes ago I was in my car, and now you have me with my nose in what could be Pine Martin poo. It's the world of, of Lucy O'Hagan. Now we haven't even got to your camp, will we walk on and get yeah, to your camp? Let's go. Well spotted. Lucy O'Hagan is an ethnobotanist and a wild food educator who teaches ancestral skills. In other words, she focuses on old knowledge about how to live rich and bountiful lives in a sustainable way in the landscape. Nowadays, she runs camps and courses out in nature, mostly in Donegal. But I've come to some woods in County Meath by the banks of the Deal River to quiz her further. Welcome to the Almanac of Ireland, a cornucopia of ideas, stories and wisdom from all over Ireland. Lucio Hagen's passion is rekindling environmental and cultural resilience. Really, it's all about us relearning the skills and crafts that were second nature to our ancestors. And not necessarily just our Bronze Age ancestors, but even our grannies and granddads. And tracking is a big part of this. By learning to do this, she feels, we're also learning to read the land, to notice who we share it with. It's just like really slowing down, you know, so approaching whether it's a track or a poo or a hole and we talk about holding the question in tracking so instead of you know jumping to a conclusion straight away we observe we slow down we talk through everything that's there and then we might zoom in closer as you did and also zoom out as well so see what else is around it whether that's track or hair um, or something else to indicate it. So people talk about tracking being the origin of science, you know, it's kind of how we developed our brains. So it's not just, you know, looking at a track and relating it to one animal, but it's also gathering all of the information to relate it to a particular individual, to relate it to a particular individual in a particular time frame. And I, for me, it's such a, yeah, there's so many deep lessons in wildlife tracking, particularly that idea of if you track alone, you're always right. So it's such a communal activity, you know, to come together and to try and figure out who's been here before us. If you track alone, you're always right. So you're saying it's better to track with people? Yeah. So many different perspectives are better than just one. We can learn so much more. People are going to ask different questions. Uh, Tracking as the beginning of scientific research. That's a gorgeous idea. Yeah. We're in the gorgeously sun-dappled space of a mixed wood forest where she brings people to teach them about nature, 
to reconnect them with the natural world. So this is where we gather and people come and they sleep out here in the woods and we gather around the fire and we learn these skills and, and so much more. It's a planted woodland, possibly around 50 or 60 years old, but it feels ecologically rich and has that lovely soft springiness of a mature forest floor. And in this woodland you have this massive old uh, parachute set up as a sort of shelter with wooden stools and a bench of just old logs all around a fire, uh, a stone fire pit with a big black kettle on it. (laughs) On a little stone table too. It's homely and could date from 100 years ago or 1,000 or even 10,000 or even right now. So I thought we could light the fire. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Have you used a bow drill before? Have I used a bow drill before? No. No, it's a bow drill. A bow drill is a device that's been used for millennia to create fire. It's essentially a vertical rod that gets twisted very fast against a flat piece of wood on the ground. Do you want to give it a go? (laughs) This is going to take hours, doesn't it? Well, if we do it together, it's much faster. To twist it, you use a bow attached to the upright rod by a piece of cord. So as we're bowing the spindle, so this long piece of wood will rub against the hearthboard and it will create heat and it will also create dust and the heat will build up until the dust ignites. It's kind of hard to explain on radio, but it's a bit like bowing very fast on an upright fiddle. We'll go nice and gentle in the beginning. Some more pressure. Whoa, smoke already. That's after like 10 seconds. Now hopefully that dust is going to ignite and set fire to the kindling. Oh, yay, fire. We have fire. Nice. Have to high five people afterwards as well. Nice work. Is that done? That's it. Now, this took a lot longer than we have time or patience for on this show. But at the same time, it was a lot quicker than you'd imagine. So there you have it fire by rubbing sticks together. Lucy now sets about making tea in a cast iron kettle and I can finally have that chat. So Lucy will you tell me what you do then? Yeah I mean I describe myself as an ancestral skills practitioner so that is the old skills fire by friction, wildlife tracking, the hide tanning, the basketry, um, the skills of our long ago ancestors. And that's really my passion. Um, yeah, my passion is, is teaching and also like the awareness that those practicing those skills, you know, gives us of how our ancestors lived for so long and how intimate a connection they had with the place that they found themselves. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a life path that I'm on. What I'm coming to realise is that so much of what I do and what I want to do is about perception changing in response to where we are at as humans on the planet now with, you know, um, with climate change and the mass extinctions. Like What we need so much is a perception change of people coming to know themselves as a part of nature again. So yeah, that really feels like my... Yeah, my mission in this life is that perception change so that people, yeah, recognise the vastness and the interconnections of all of this and become humbled and inspired. And what are the steps towards it or what would you like us to learn or how do we learn it? 
There's so many different portals, you know, and I think we're finding more all the time. So for me, it's very much these skills, like these life ways. So whether that's making a fire with sticks, like I could just go and get a lighter, you know, but I really, the connection that comes with that and the, um, yeah, the sense of pride, the sense of achievement that comes with that and just the slowness of it really appeals to me. Um, or going out and gathering herbs, you know, like having a connection with the nettles or the dandelions, like who are your neighbours, who grows around you? Or the wildlife tracking, you know, this way of seeing the world through a completely different lens and knowing that, you know, we're not the, the protagonist, you know, like we so often in our culture, it's that the humans are the protagonist and that we are the centre of the story. But of course, we're not, you know, we are in the, this human story, but there are so many other stories playing out around us. And, you know, just coming to see like that scat there and knowing Pine Martin has crossed through here or, you know, hearing the robin and knowing that this is Robin's place too, or seeing, you know, sometimes around the fire circle here, I'll find the little chewed remains of snail shells from mice. And I love that. I'm like, oh God, the mice have sat here and had a feast as well, just as we have done previously. So for me, that's a huge portal, you know. She also teaches people how to do things like tan hides and make buckskin. Why would people come to learn to, you know, how to make a buckskin out of a hide or to make basket? Is it is it practical? Is it so that they can do it as a job or I don't know, there's just something very it teaches me a lot. It teaches me a lot about these animals, it teaches me a lot about myself, it teaches me a lot about death and about grief and about joy that process of working with another's skin. I'm in the process of developing a programme with a friend um, around honouring the deer, you know, so that's, we'll be out in Donegal, the deer will be taken off the hillside and we'll go through this whole process of, you know, going from carcass to plate and using all parts of the animal as our ancestors would have done, you know, nothing would be wasted. So we'll be tanning the skin, we'll be making tools from the bones and the antler, we'll be processing the sinew for sewing thread, the hooves for musical instruments, the, um, the fat for rendering, for cooking and for making our, our lamps and our light. Um, and then also learning how to track the deer, how the deer fits into the ecology. But, uh, you know, we're asking questions with that of, you know, how do we become like humans that can honour an animal's life again, rather than just buying it packaged? How can we become more comfortable with death again, knowing that we had so many death rituals in our culture, that the keeners were such a huge part of our society? How do we become worthy of asking another animal to die for us? And then, you know, how do we give back? So there's such, um, yeah, there's so many different levels to this work for me. And then people who come to do these courses, you know, there is this practical application of it and there's no getting around the hard work that it takes. It is very physically demanding and that's kind of why I, I love teaching fish skin tanning and eel skin tanning a lot because it's very accessible. Again, a very endangered craft and um, recently I'd gone up to Loch Ness where the eel skins come from and brought that skill back there and they're now looking at this as a possible revenue stream for them. So, Did they do something with the skin at one time and what are they doing with them now? 
So they're tanned and they're very strong skin. So they would have been used on the hinges of doors, on the belts of machines, as ropes. Hey, you, you, there was one there on the on the heart of the fire, shouldn't we? Yeah. I'd seen these last week. And they're amazing. So it's a long strip. It looks a bit like a fish skin, but it's hard. It's tougher. Like a fish skin is all scaly. There's no scales on it. I don't know where well, they're there ever. There are scales, but they're very, very tiny. Do you know, so oh. that herringbone pattern that you're seeing yeah. is the pattern of the scales. Oh, right. Yeah. So... The, all of these crafts and skills that we developed came from another age. Mm-hmm. Like, are, are they relevant in a world now where we have like this huge population and so many people are, are locked in this new world of, of modernity and globalisation? Yeah, I mean, something that I come back to a lot is this idea of people will not protect something that they don't have a relationship with. Um So like, you know, people can, you know, live in apartment blocks and live in cities um, and then without having that connection to nature, without having that lived experience of ourselves as nature, they're really not going to care about it, you know, and particularly this younger generation coming through with, you know, technology being such an incredible tool, but also being so manipulative of how we are as humans, you know. So, yeah, I think just getting people back out onto the land, whether that's in a city park or that's in, you know, a private estate or it's in the bog or it's on the sea, that people fall in love with the world again. And really, like, the, I suppose at the core of my work, like, the skills are one way, but it's more about learning to be human again so how do we communicate with one another how do we create communities how do we create alternatives to the systems that we live in now which are so harmful to the planet which are so harmful to ourselves and which are ultimately what's driving these extinction losses what's driving the loss of biodiversity um yeah so i think there's there's a larger picture to consider in all of this as well um, and that's why in, in my work, you know, we do learn about, you know, the impacts of colonisation, the impacts of white supremacy, the impacts of, you know, all of these harmful systems of oppression, which have prevented us from yeah, connecting on this deep level. I feel like there's a lot to unravel. How do we create the conditions where we can, yeah, live with one another and live together and live with this land and... That's going to take all of us, you know, it's not just me saying this is what I think is important. It's, yeah, there are so many parts of this puzzle which are needed. It's strange. These are all very new ideas to me, particularly in relation to how I was reared and conditioned. And yet they're also very old, ancient even. They're groundbreaking, revolutionary, but also just common sense. The accepted ways of our people for generations, passed down ogluin gluin, from generation to generation. Although gluin means knee, from our parents' knee, that we then pass down to our grandchildren sitting on our knees. It's funny, you get onto big themes very quickly, don't you, when you're going back to to issues of nature? Yeah, Yeah, I do anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything has to be, because it's all about survival and thriving and death and struggle. And joy. 
you know, and joy and, you know, also like I think we we often think of animals or indeed like our past ancestors as always being in this state of fight or flight or, you know, they're just trying to survive. But we watch birds play all the time. We see new fox cubs come out into the world. Like there is there is place for play. That's how they learn. That's how we learn. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's wrong of us to assume that it's just this eat or be eaten world like there's lots of cooperation between animals as well there's just so many parts to the puzzle as lucy says where to start if i was sherlock holmes or miss marple i'd get out the magnifying glass and start on the ground tracking the signs and trails of who's been along the route before us like the sand the kalahari bushmen as lucy says Learning to recognise the tracks and marks of the non-humans who live alongside us can change how we see the world. And I'd like to change how I see the world. I want to learn more about tracking. So we head off. We're going down to the riverbank. We head off across the spongy forest floor that runs along the Deal River and the various meandering tributaries of it that had carved the land into islands. Look at that river with the leaves reflected in the water. The gorgeous hush of the forest focuses my attention on the bird songs and the sounds of our footsteps breaking twigs. So All right. Here we go. What do you see? See a cluster of feathers, of black and white feathers. They all look like they're arranged in parallel lines, but that must be coincidence. And I see no body of anything, just a cluster. Someone has lost some feathers. They're about four inches long. Most of them are the same size, some are smaller, three inches. And they're intertwined in the leaves, um, in the brown leaves and the dead leaves with some ivy around it. So... What are you using? Oh, look, some little baby down there. Yeah. So someone obviously pulled at the down, at the big feathers first, and then the little, other little down there. It's the remains of a dead bird. Lucy shows me how to look at the arrangement of feathers, to think about who might have made the kill. A bird of prey... A mammal? So it's quite spread out, isn't yeah. it? You know, we have these longer feathers here and over there on the edge of the river. And then if we trace down the bank as well, a lot of those um, down feathers are oh, down yeah. the bank too, which might have blown or could have been carried. So it's at least a metre, probably a metre and a half, the spread site. And then if we zoom in then, so we've zoomed out and had a look around. Now noticing the feathers themselves. So maybe pick a feather. Oh, I'm seeing a little track of red. Is that where the blood or is that just where it's stuck under the skin? Oh, Looks yeah. like. So it's a white quill, a white centre, mm -hmm. cuticle type thing. And then a little bit of white um, of the feather bit and then up to a darker grey or almost black. And then noticing the end of the quill, what does that look like? I've never done this before, given so much analytical and observational attention to nature, to what's on the ground beneath my feet. I haven't focused so hard since studying a maths question for the Leaving Cert. Is the point of the quill still there? No, well it's cut at an angle, so no, it looks like it's been bitten off or something. So I'll find one with a... Yeah, so you think it might have been bitten off? Yeah, and there's that red, the berries that often... Yeah, they all are... They're none, the point is none of them there. No, they're all cut at an angle as well. So, this animal... Like 
It's strange and alien almost, but also strangely familiar. After all, I'm the progeny of ancestors who've been using precisely these skills for millennia. I literally wouldn't be alive today were my forebears not incredibly proficient at what I'm now just learning how to do, like a total beginner, an ignorant neophyte. It's making me feel more present and connected to the particular spot of ground that I'm standing on than I've ever been since I was a curious toddler full of wonder still and questioning everything. There's something enormously freeing about it. For once, I'm not itching to check my email or my Insta feed. I realise I'm reading the signs so crudely, but I know that with practice, I could become so much more perceptive, so much more aware of the myriad cycles and elements and variables that make up this particular moment and location. So you could either spend like the five minutes scrolling through Instagram or you could get down on your knees and and do this little Miss Marple, this little detective thing. Exactly. Well, this is like reading the morning news for me, you know, (laughs) go out and see what's happened, who's been killed, who's passed through here. Yeah. You've been listening to The Almanac of Ireland with me, Mancon McGann. The series is produced by Colette Kinsella and partially funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. It's a Red Hair Media production for RT Radio 1.